Welcome to The Third Rail Entrepreneur, a podcast about enrichment. Enrichment of your mind, your relationships, your body, and ultimately your business via the entrepreneurial path. My name is Alistair MacDonald. Let's get started. There's an old saying that nature abhors a vacuum. I want to share some thoughts today and ideally some concepts that will help us see that it's actually equally true of power. In the sport of jujitsu, you can find yourself training with a friend or partner who is of less experience, say, than most. And one of the most identifiable aspects of training jujitsu with somebody who has limited experience or limited talent for the sport, at least limited skills, let's put it that way, is that they tend to move from technique to technique. What you'll notice when you train with a higher level belt is something else arises entirely, which is that they are able to take transitions as opportunities to jump significantly higher on the hierarchy of ideal positions and submissions. So whereas the basic white or blue belt tends to move through transitions in a manic scramble, desperate to get to the next most familiar position, the brown and black belt is able to see those transitions as a brief window of opportunity in which your opponent is distracted, fearful, and frantic, and you are poised, calm, and clear. It is when training with people like this that you will take, for those that know the sport, a simple guard pass and suddenly realize that someone's taken your back, the worst position to be in. This is what happens in transitions with those that are aware of the opportunity that they create. The United States and the world at large is going through a significant transitional phase. Transitions in geopolitical power, economies, marketplaces, and of course, business and society itself. This tells me from my own experience, both lived and seen, that these are the types of transitional opportunities that are significant for those patient enough and clear enough of mind that know which position to move into, which grips matter, and which ones don't, that we too can jump significantly higher on the ladder of our own aspiration if we are paying attention. COVID, the recession, the societal shifts that we're seeing now, all of these are very big picture shifts. And it's stuff that myself and my co-host, Dr. Mark Costas, will be digging more into over our next several episodes. For today, though, I wanted to take a step back, a large step back, actually a step up to the 10,000-foot view of the world and speak about something that you may not consider yourself connected to, stuck as we always are in the day-to-day grind of our own lives and businesses, our own modest aspirations and frustrations. I want to pull you up to the 10,000-foot view of global and geopolitical power. This, ideally, as with all thought experiments that I run throughout my mind throughout the day and throughout the year, should, I hope, move the needle on your own threat assessments, risk assessments, strategic inquiry, and experience in a way that it improves the decision-making process inside your own life and, most importantly, your own business. Identifying transitions 
means looking at things that show up from time to time with predictable expectation. In the 1980s, there was a rash of movies that all seemed to center around one theme, which is the parents going on vacation and the teenage child being left home. These stories followed a similar narrative. Mom and dad were stuck in Cancun and couldn't catch a flight. And Jimmy and his mates decided, you know where this one goes, to hold a massive party. This kind of stuff is, uh, it's almost cliche. (laughs) But if you're listening to this, we'll probably get along really well, which tells me you did the same thing when your parents went away. Whenever a vacuum in leadership opens up, there is just as much an opportunity for improvement as there is destruction. And I want to shift our attention here just for purposes of enhancing our own thinking and perspective on the world to that which is going on in the U.S. and global balance of power. Over the course of the last four, five, or six years, there has been a pronounced significant shift in the American preference and psyche away from international entanglements. We've even seen in the course of the most recent Trump presidency, tariffs supposedly intended to punish Chinese business owners and so forth. Of course, this is a myth. It is Americans who pay those tariff fees, not the Chinese. Uh, This is a widely misunderstood issue. So we've seen a rise in protectionist behavior around the world. We've also seen a very strong pivot to this notion of America first. America first. It was quite literally enough of a rallying cry to bring somebody into power. That's how much of an appetite there is. Now, I'm not for a moment going to add to the media bilge out there that you and I already have to suffer through every day by going on about whether this is right or wrong, good or bad, stupid or wise. There's enough of that out there. I'm more concerned with your and my individual decision-making skills. And that means scenario running and understanding what goes on in transitions. Part of this shift has not just reduced or rather not reduced, but been reflective of the American appetites for international entanglements. Fully 80% of Americans polled in the last five years, repeatedly, this answers cluster around 80%, show that the vast bulk of Americans, 80% of them are either, quote, I'm reading from the actual polls, suspicious to negative about foreign entanglements. We have no appetite for it. We have also become completely internally focused. I mean, how many of us can speak clearly to what is going on with the Uyghurs in China? We can't. We can tell you about the Kardashians and what this candidate said, and that one did, and the latest scandal of some celebrity du jour. This is all really the collective version of us contemplating our own navel, staring at our belly buttons and losing sight of what's going on in the broader world. This seems to be what we want to do. And we will pay, of course, a price for that. It is transitional times like this that has foreign powers jumping with joy. When Americans turn on each other, you might have noticed that most recently, quite literally playing itself out at the U.S. Capitol. This is an opportunity for the black belt powers out there to jump ahead significantly on the rungs of power. Historically, at least for most of our childhood and those of our parents, the United States has been living in a world of two powers, the USSR and the USA. We now look back on this time as the Cold War and think that it's largely over. 
But there were certain privileges that the world enjoyed there, and they have been captured beautifully by the behavioral economist and game theory father figure of Reinhard Selten, a German economist and mathematician who has done profound work in this area, winning a Nobel Prize in 1994 for some of the deployment and implications of his work, most of which began back in the late 60s. I found myself coming back to Professor Selton's writings and thinking out of research for my own conundrums and those of the clients that I serve. I keep a small group of private clients. And in that group, what has emerged lately, unsurprisingly, is dozens of micro versions of what we're experiencing at the macro scale. Individuals showing up differently in our businesses, angry patients, angry consumers looking for somebody to blame acrimony within team members or the businesses and so forth that I serve, people behaving strangely. Now, this makes perfect sense. It would be naive of us to think that as the rest of the world is biting each other's necks, that we are not likely to experience that inside our own homes or businesses or relationships. It would be naive at best to assume that. But as I am working with individuals through this and providing solutions for them with them, for the individual conflicts that are emerging and problems that they're wrestling with in their day-to-day life. I have found myself going back to some of this beautiful old work that I've walked away from for a couple of years, which is, of course, the field of game theory. Game theory is the basic research and investigation and framing of any sort of interactions that have incentives and require cooperation. Game theory is trying to understand where incentives become perverted, aligned, accelerated, or distorted in such a way that cooperation is likely to break down. When cooperation in games breaks down, conflict arises. And Professor Selton's work was groundbreaking in many ways in this. A lot of his work is virtually unknown. But many years ago, he wrote a 40-page mathematical proof that displayed some incredible things. The most powerful of which is that the probability of conflict, wherever it is, at whatever degree of scale, increases almost like a hockey stick as the number of players in, especially international relations, increases from two. When it was just about the USA and the USSR, we had finite outcomes and finite number of participants. Growing up in Zimbabwe, I was one of those nations influenced by the communist bloc, at least those of our leadership at the time. Weapons of choice and purchases of military equipment and collective political machinations were at the whim of the uh, communist party of the USSR. And our economy tended to fluctuate as our society did as we test drove those rather morally and ethically and certainly financially bankrupt philosophies. Other nations experienced the same thing. Cuba did, right on the shores of the American homeland. So in this game, what Professor Selton showed is that the lower the number of participants, the less trouble there is likely to be because of what he called a mistakes equilibrium. This meant that if the USA were to make a mistake, both they and Russia would pay a price for it. Typically, the one that created the mistake would pay slightly more, but mistakes were decreasingly 
probable or possible because of the limited number of nodes of information. Even the spy networks between the USSR and the USA were so extensive and so porous that they basically just served to transfer information between each other and kept, kept each party pretty clearly up to date on their intentions, their weaponry, and so forth, creating a beautiful gridlock that quite possibly saved the existence of the world. But that changes, according to Professor Selton, when we start to increase the number of characters that are at play. And this makes fairly obvious sense, but it's worth digging into. We are right now in a situation where there are no longer two, but five immense blocks of power around the world. Those five blocks are China, quite obviously, Russia, Japan, the United States, and Europe. Now, Europe is really a bit of a misnomer because in the annals of power, Europe is Germany. And Germany, as Germany chooses to go, so goes Europe. But as German business goes, so goes German foreign policy. What you and I have had witness to over the course of the last several years of America turning in and on itself is significant economic and social ties being bound up between Germany, Russia, and China. This is a big deal. I was at a hedge fund conference many years ago, gosh, it must have been 2014, and a young European analyst made a profound point. He was making the case that what Germany has, which any game theorist and prognostician is likely to use, is understanding who has resources and what their incentives are and who has a need and what their resources are. And he was making the case quite eloquently that Germany is in an unusual spot. It's a hyper-educated, very wealthy nation with some of the world's finest industrial technologies. But one more point is what Germany is missing is affordable labor and land. They've fought for that in the past. You may remember how that went. Right next door, virtually, is Russia, which has the exact opposite, a shortage of industrial technology and unbelievable land and labor resources. Because of the heightened education standards and cost of living in Germany, even mid to lower tier income earning workers are massively more expensive than they are for the equivalent in Russia. There's also less of them. And this analyst was making the case that increased coalitions and so forth are inevitable between Germany and Russia as their commercial ties get connected. You would have seen in the most recent history that commercial overlay and foreign policy friendship that has emerged has created everything from trade pacts to significant oil and gas pipelines out of Russia into Germany. This friendship is getting deeper and deeper, faster and faster. The same is true of the Russians and the Chinese. The same is true of the Germans and the Chinese, and on and on. So when I say the fifth and final is Europe, what I really mean to say is it's Germany. The issue again is we've got more people moving into a position of power. Over the course of the last couple of years, we've seen, uh, gosh, even just in the last few weeks, China start to harass, as I say, the Uyghurs or Uyghurs, depending on who you speak with, cracking down on pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong, 
threats and so forth of people like Jack Ma and his ant group paid a very large and public price for punching above their weight, politically speaking. Simultaneously, we've seen uh, Russia move into Crimea. We've seen murders and so forth in the Ukraine, uh, politically motivated. All of this is going on completely unchecked by American foreign policy. Again, I have no interest in haggling with anyone about whether this is good or bad, but we just need to begin with first principles, which is that we know it to be true. This is the world we find ourselves in. And I'm unfortunately reminded, by contrast, thanks to uh, gentleman H. Woody Brock for pointing me to a fascinating but completely unknown paper written by another game theorist, the Hungarian-American John Harsanyi. Written in 1961, the title of the paper was The Meaning and Measure of Power. I'm going to come back to that paper in a moment. When we look and compare and contrast the difference between an N of two, as in the USA and the USSR, in a Cold War, we contrast that with the outbreak of World War I. Very different time, a significantly more complicated game. In the case of World War I, there were five empires and nine alliances between these players. This kicks the door open for a huge misinterpretation of each other's motives, tools, strategies, and incentives. As I said, we break the mistakes equilibrium and have myriad more opportunities for misunderstanding and incorrect or manipulation of information. When Archduke Ferdinand of Austria was assassinated in late 1913, so many of these European empirical players completely misunderstood who was responsible. So this made for significant inter- and intra-alliance confusion. The result? Countries were declaring war on each other to the order of one or two a day, declaring war for reasons that were based completely on incorrect information or a misunderstanding of it. So what would otherwise have been a modest conflict between local interests turned into the largest war in European history. Now, getting back to Professor Selton's work, the critical piece to understand here is that all of these people were acting rationally, but they were doing so on wrong information or a misinterpretation of accurate information. So contrast that with today, where we have again five significant global powers. As the United States has migrated its attention away from the world stage, that vacuum for leadership has opened up, and the teenagers are holding a huge house party. What happens then with will? The will to stand up and draw boundaries and police the world. I mentioned a few minutes ago the, the Professor John Harsanyi's 1961 paper, The Meaning and Measure of Power. He identified five rather general sources of geopolitical power. And they're as follows, in no particular order. Resource power, which is essentially the equipment, uh, food, guns, etc. The second is threat power, how dangerous these things are. The third is coalitional power, coalitional muscle. Cast your mind back to the 
post 9-11 attacks where President Bush created, as he called it, a coalition of the willing. Nice little bit of language play there reminding us that everybody that participated wanted to. Of course, wanted to also meant really should. (laughs) That's how it is that we ended up with Kiwis and Aussies uh, participating in our conflagrations in the Middle East. Anyway, back to the list. So number three is coalitional muscle, the ability for a power to gather allies. The fourth is better information or information power. As to a great extent, that is one of the things that caused a huge gridlock between the USA and the USSR during the Cold War. It's very little difference in the quality and frequency of information between the two of them. The final generic source of power is the most profound, resolve. Resolve is crucial for any sort of international or even domestic conflict. This is how even small nations like Israel can absolutely dominate in any conflagration that they participate. It is also why Vietnam, Korea, and Afghanistan have been an absolute disaster for Americans. Americans just did not have the resolve to go across the world and fight in other people's backyards. In fact, so much so that our efforts and labors in Iraq and Afghanistan have, if you watch the deployment of troops and those numbers waxing and waning, have fit exactly according to and mirrored beautifully, although quite hauntingly, with popularity and sentiment polls for those that are in power, waxing and waning according to whatever it is that leadership wanted to cater to. It is social appetite, or lack thereof, for these type of international participation that has us lacking this resolve, this most crucial piece that the mathematician and game theorist John Harsanyi was making a point of. So we get to today. And we get to ask ourselves, if, when, China moves forcefully into Taiwan, what will the United States do about that? What should they do about that? Once power is tasted, it is very rarely given up. In much the same way that I think it was Mark Twain who says, once a human being acquires a superstition, nothing short of death will separate him from it. The same is true of power. Once we get a taste for it, we have no interest in giving it up. So if, when, China decides to move into Taiwan, what will Russia do? Well, Russia will probably move into Latvia. Seems like somewhat of a lateral move, super easy to do. We'll give them beautiful access to the Baltic Sea, even better, deeper ports than they have just west of St. Petersburg. Are these things likely to happen? Well. Strike me as possible, less so the Latvian mental exercise, but more so the Taiwanese. The reason that I share this is this is the new world that our current, new, though current, American president is moving into. The Democrats have control of the presidency, the House, and the Senate. That might give one the impression that we are once again engaged in policing the world, though social appetites say we're not. The withdrawal from the global stage of the most recent administration, exactly what the voters wanted, apparently, at the time. 
is something that cannot be stitched back. There is no amount of appetite that Americans have, just as there is no power in President Biden or interest, I believe, on the international front or uh, high-level front of American leadership to try to stitch these holes closed. It's just not going to happen. There's an old saying that the camel's nose is under the tent. Now, I share this with my American clients and friends, and they don't ever quite make sense of it. Point being that once a camel's nose is under the tent, the rest of the camel is coming in too. Such is the case with the vacuum of power that has been created by American choices over the course of the last five, six years, but particularly over the last ten. Power abhors a vacuum. What we're likely to see play out over the international stage for the next few years is likely to be seismic. This means that opportunities will present themselves in foreign markets. Countries like Singapore strike me as very attractive investment opportunities. They are essentially the Switzerland of Asia. If Asian conflict were to emerge, which I'm less expectant of, they would be an absolute shiny place on the hill. In order for us to be good business owners, we would be well served by becoming good thinkers and to understand better than we currently do incentives, wants, needs, perversions of incentive, and the distribution of power inside our businesses, inside our local communities, our relationships, and the behavior that we can expect once we understand what people need and the incentives to either keep things away from them or give them access to them. Geopolitics is moving through another significant and seismic shift, and we're likely to see changes over the next few years that could prove to be fascinating. The camel's nose is under the tent, and I'll be most interested to see what happens next. That's it for this episode. Thanks for being here. Hey, there's only two things that you have in your life, your time and your attention, that you've given both to me for these few minutes of today means everything. Cheers. Cheers.